Hi, welcome to Unpacking Mental Health. I'm your host, Jenna Brown. I'll be having conversations with people about their mental health journey and sharing experiences and insights that we've learned. So thanks for listening. I hope you can take away some tips and tricks that will help you on your journey. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Nathan Davis. Nathan has accomplished a 20-year career in the New Zealand police, where he worked his way up to ranking of senior sergeant. Nathan will talk with me today about managing his own mental health while working in the New Zealand police, how police work alongside medical professionals to manage the mental health of members of the public, and finally, Nathan's choice to undergo gastric sleeve surgery in order to lose weight. Um, Welcome to Unpacking Mental Health, Nathan. It's great to have you on the podcast. Good morning. Thanks very much. All right. Let's jump straight in. Um, Let's talk about your 20-year career in the NZ Police from a mental health perspective, Um, as well as a highly rewarding career. That line of work can be quite disturbing, dealing with people in crisis, shift work, and putting yourself in constant danger. Um, How did you manage your own mental health? throughout your career from a recruit through to senior sergeant? How do I manage my own mental health? I suppose um, I, I think policing is a bit like being a teacher, being a doctor or uh, being a nurse. Um, it's just in your DNA. Like I, I, I talk to teachers and I talk to nurses and i just amazed that they do that job. And when I was, you know, being in the police, I think is, is a bit of a mindset stuff and mm-hmm. I remember playing uh, cops and robbers when I was a little fella, and I was never the robber. I, I was always the cop, and and I don't know why that my DNA or thinking is like that. Um, but that's obviously you know upbringing and stuff like that. But I remember even like in Prima One, Prima Two, playing cops and robbers, and I was you know I was the cop. And okay. but I suppose in the police for me it was about um, I just I knew that it would. Had the potential to harden you, and I knew that it had the potential to take from you. Um, and I didn't, I didn't want. I was prepared to give some away, and I was prepared to be hardened to a degree, but I didn't want to be um, just completely spent at, at the other end. You know, I want to be. I want to add some value as a grandfather if I'm lucky enough to be a grandfather one day, and and I just want to be an okay person to be around. You know, I didn't want to be turn into overly cynical or hardened or just not pleasant to be around. So managing my uh, my mental health stuff, I just um, I was never afraid to ask for help. Okay. And the police are very good, in my mind, around looking after their people and providing you opportunities to speak to psychologists and debriefing some pretty horrific stuff. And we do some horrific stuff. And, you know, we, we get these... Uh, for me, I was 26, but we get these young people quite often, you know, in their t- early 20s, and we put them in, in a police car and we put them on the front line and away they go. And they go to the stuff that everyone else runs away from, the domestic violence, uh, you know, the, the the sudden deaths, the vehicle crashing it crashes. It can be quite horrific and it can be quite hardening. So, I didn't, again, for me, I just wanted to be nice, a better person or an okay person at the end. But the police are good at looking after their people, in my mind, and providing opportunities to speak to psychologists and um, just making sure you um, emotionally unpack. Um, so if, new, if one of these younger people that went out on the front line were to attend a sudden death or a vehicle accident, they would then have access to a psychologist to debrief. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. and it used to be. And I, look, I, I believe in the twenty years that I was there, and I've been out now for nearly four. Um, in '97, when I joined, I think you you almost had to sort of. Well, I felt as if you had to push to ask, or if it was a bit of a secondary thought that it would be offered. But now I, I believe that it's the culture of the police is that it's it's okay to ask for help and that it's okay to be um, to access those services. It used to be. Um, and again, maybe I, I was, you know, young and bravado, full of bravado as well, and I, I didn't ask for that. But I sort of see when I left that I think the opportunity to speak to those psychologists is really is just is just present. Mm-hmm. It's there. Oh, that's that's really good. Right. Yeah. And do, do you think there is a lot of uptake on that from people generally? The I would say it's probably increased in the time that I was there, but I would also would like to see more. 
Um, again, I, you know, my management theory being out of the police and being in the police was that we're in the business of making better people. Um, and we just need to make sure that when they go back to the home, to the family, or even when they go to another organisation outside of the police, that we, we the police, haven't um, hardened them or taken too much, you know, from, mm-hmm. from their families. And, look, I was, I was very lucky um you know, I married very, very well. My wife's uh, father was a policeman, so she sort of knew and understood the pressures, I suppose. Um, and she knew me that I would that I would go take those extra steps, I suppose. And part of my um, talking to psychologists, I learned about me. I wanted to learn about me and how how I, why I thought certain way, why I felt certain ways. Um, why some things might bother me and not bother you. And once I learnt how I learnt and how I processed stuff, um, it certainly made it quite, it made it easier, I suppose. Yeah. So when you, other than speaking with a psychologist, how would you have coped with seeing things like, I guess, suicides and um, horrific car accidents and things like that? Are there any other kind of coping tools you would use? Um, my, uh, my mum used to say that, um, never be afraid of the dead. It's the, it's the living that's going to hurt you. And so I, I thought, um, when I was dealing with, with sudden deaths and, and car accidents, I just, I, I don't know why, but I had this huge sense of privilege that, um, to be involved in that and you're dealing with someone's loved one. We're all somebody's son. We're all somebody's little girl, right? And um, to be dealing with people at their highest stress time in life when you're dealing with death, um, I, I just got a huge sense of privilege around it. And to cope with it, as strange as it sounds, I talked to them Um that and I just I would tell and that helped me cope and I, I would tell people okay right well what's happening now Bob is that um, I'm going to get you out of the car you know the undertaker's here and we're going to put you on the on the trolley and I'm going to put a cover over you and and that just helped me yeah. process that I was actually dealing with with a person um, yeah that's, oh, that's, that's very sweet that's a nice way to. Uh, that would be nice for families to hear as well that had, you know, were their loved ones in that situation that they're being cared for in that way. Yeah, like, you know, and let's say I'm not, it's not right or wrong how others cope with it or how, you know, that's 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 how I coped with it. I just, like I say, I, I probably, um, yeah, I, I talked to them. I just, and, the, and, it, and it probably helped me helped me process. I understand that if you hurt yourself and you hear a voice that says you're all right, you'll be okay, even if it's your own voice. Because quite often I had a hunting accident a couple of years ago that I fell down and I cracked my leg and I heard and I heard myself say to myself, you're okay, you're okay, you'll be okay. And I asked the doctor, I said, where did that come from? Like, why am I talking to myself? Yeah. I'm upside down <laughs> in Supplejack in, in the hill. Why am I talking to myself? And he said, it's a, it's a thing that even if you hear a voice tell you that you're okay, even if it's your own, oh. you feel as if you're going to be okay. Right, so just any reassurance yes. from yourself. Yes. Well, that's yeah. neat. Oh, we'll keep that one in mind. Yes. That's a good tip. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Well, so I guess also in the police, there's this bit of, um, I don't know, a bit of drinking culture and things like that. I guess there would have been a bit of. Certainly was. Yeah, certainly was. Um, and again, that's changed. Um, and it had to change. I, I think it was it was a reasonably unhealthy culture where we didn't drink to be social sociable. Uh, we drank to get drunk, um, yeah. and I could sort of see why, um, as the organisations, you know, from what I joined in the late nineties to the late nineties to the late eighties, it, it'd be different. Yeah, um, that maybe is a way to manage stress. After yeah, those yeah, and and you feel. You feel a bit, it's quite defining being in a place where you go out and you'll meet somebody and they'll say, oh, this is Nathan, he's in the police. They'll never say, this is Nathan, he's an ex-digger driver. 
They'll never say, Nathan, he's an ex-truck driver. They'll now mm. say, this is Nathan, he's an ex-policeman. Like, it's quite defining. Um, and it's it's quite socially isolating sometimes. Okay. Um, that straight away, you go to a barbecue, you'll be introduced as Jenna the police woman or, or Jenna the ex, you know, the ex-police woman. And, um, and then someone I want to talk to you about policing. So right. it's... It's a bit like, um, not that I ever was one, I sort of feel it's a bit like being an all-black and you, you see those all-blacks on the on the news, Sean Fitzpatrick, all-black captain. Yeah, he was, but that was sort of 20 years ago. Mm. But it's you know it's a tag yeah. that's still associated and I think with the police it'll, it'll be that, that as well. I never get introduced as, you know, Nathan, the, yeah, the former truck driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you think that's not because people want are uh, scared or trying to distance themselves from you because you're part of the law, but just because it's a, like a privilege, uh, what yeah. would you say? Yeah, I think it's potentially, and it may be, look, it may be just my ego saying this, I think it potentially people say, say that because there's a reasonably high level of trust and confidence in the police. Mm, yeah. um, and they say that, do they, do they mean to, not put you on a pedestal as such, but it distinguishes you and it, and it does separate you. And I, I did feel, you know, for a long time, and I still do, there's that social isolation um, that you get coming from the police. And that's why, and so therefore you tend to look internally uh, and hang out with cops um, a little bit more because they get you, they understand because they've done what you've done. And I've, I've told a few war stories since I've been out and, you know, and I went labouring for the first three months when I left the police. It was wonderful. I had my first Christmas and New Year off, and all I had to do was carry stuff. It was great. Um, and I was telling some stories, and there was a growing man there who started reaching, started vomiting. And I, you know, as around the story, and I said, what's wrong with you? And my wife said, there's nothing wrong with him. It's you. Oh, right. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I was a bit puzzled, and I said, what do you yeah. mean? She said, it's you because you're the one that thinks this is okay. Right. Yeah, I, I guess you get uh, desensitised to things. Yes, right? yeah. yes. So I've got read this wonderful book, uh, law, uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, um, and that's really, that's, you know, if there's any police serving ex listening to this, I'd say get that book and read it. And, um, and it's all, you know, for me and using criminology, it's the understanding or the definition of normal. And so therefore you tend to associate with others who think that's normal. And therefore, in my mind, it becomes almost a little internal cup f- filling itself. And I'm not sure if that's the, a good thing to do. I like, and when I was very young in my police career, I made sure that I carried on. I didn't ever play for the police rugby teams. I played for my old teams. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you still um, maintain some socialisation yes, out of there. Yes. Um, was it different? Yes, it was. Um, because I wasn't, you know, Nathan the truck driver and bouncer anymore. I was Nathan the cop. And um, but I, for me, it was important to maintain those relationships and not just be totally absorbed by the police. Yeah, yeah, right. So, did you feel like you couldn't really relate to people outside of the police as much, or you couldn't open up because they're kind of looking up to you as the police officer? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you you, you couldn't open up because of the you know these. Uh, confidential stuff and these privacy stuff and um, and again like they they don't get it people normal people normal quotation marks they they kind of don't get it because um, it's it's a strange world in the place. So one day I was we got called out. I got called out to a job and um, and I rang the wife. And I said, oh, "Look, I'm going to be late home." And I had had my phone between you know between my cheek and my shoulder, and I was getting a gun out of the safe because there'd been a, there'd been a shooting of, of a gang house. And um, I said, "Oh, could you save me some fried rice and rara? I'll be home. Not too sure what time I'll be home." And then while I'm doing that, I racked the you know I put I put the the bullets in it and you, you uh, operate the pistol. So it puts one in the chamber and it makes that you know that gun sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wife said, oh, what's that? I said, oh, look, it's just a shooting. I'm just off to go and sort that out. And then for I had this, like, life just went pause, and I thought, when did this become normal? Yeah, right. You know, like, I, I'm worried about making sure I've got some fried rice for tea. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, Going I'm into putting, a danger zone. Yes, I'm putting a gun on so I can go and confront somebody who's probably got a bigger gun than me. And I was, and I remember thinking, why am I doing this? Mm. Um. Yeah, but I did it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess even though you get desensitised to that, there's probably still something in your body and brain that can 
assess that danger and something's still probably happening, you know, happening physiologically inside you, that's... Yes, yeah, and it's that trust stuff and, you know, trusting the training and trusting your ability and trusting your your decision-making. I mean, I, as a recruit, I was, was in the police for about eight weeks and I found myself on an armed cordon uh, one night, you know, w- with a gun without doing station duty, and I just thought, what am I doing here? You know, three months ago, I was driving trucks, you know, carting dirt around and, and building natural gas mains, and now... I'm standing under a I'm standing under a tree with a gun. It's just it's a bit like that old TV show Quantum Leap, you know, where you get put into somewhere and you just go, oh boy, how do I get here? Yeah, but 20 years later, I guess you enjoyed it along the way. You've you found your way. Yes. I guess. Yes. What's the difference in being on the front line to where you went after that? So I went uh, front line for about three years, and then I joined the CIP. Um, um, so I just wanted to be involved in that sort of the, the bigger inquiries, I suppose, and, and, and the bigger stuff. Um, so I spent about 10 years in the CIB doing that. Um, and then I just, I worked for a wonderful uh, man in Porua when I was a detective there. And he just challenged me to be, um, to be more. And, um, and that's, yeah, so that sort of got me on the sort of study path again and the management path, and then I became a sergeant uh, in the Bay of Islands. Um, I went to Kawakawa, where my where my father was from, so I had three years up there, much to my wife's disappointment. Um, she hated it. Um, she's Yeah, we were there for three years, and she's got three full Pandora charm bracelets, and that's no coincidence. <laughs> um, and then I got promotion again down to Danny Virk as a senior sergeant, and I was there for four years, and then the last... The last sort of ten months, I came to Palmerston North to headquarters. I could I could feel myself um, just falling out of love with it, really. Um, and I've always said I've always said that the police is a job that you can't do without any passion and conviction. And when that goes, then you should go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was starting to lose the the passion for it. I remember one day I pulled up. I wasn't working, and I pulled up. At, at the traffic lights and a police car pulled up next to me and I didn't look across. I didn't see, I didn't care to see who was driving it, who who they had arrested. Um, I, I, I love the police, so I cried on my last day, um, but I just didn't need to do it anymore. I was I was okay with it. And um, again, you know, not saying that, that I'm, an, I'm an all black or I was in the all, the all black of, of policing, but Conrad Smith uh, played 99 test matches for the All Blacks. You would think, you know, and everyone probably asked them, well, why wouldn't you come back and play one more to play 100? And the answer probably is because he didn't need to. Mm. And and same with me, with the police. I just had, I, I'd earned the right to go, I think, 20 years, 20 years, one week. Um, and one of the things somebody asked me, before I left, they said, would you want your children to do this job? And I went, oh, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. Um, and then I just, yeah, I just, I loved it. It was great. I'm very proud of it that I, that I, that I managed 20 years. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm okay coming out, you know, like I'm learning yeah. the new, new, much to the help of my wife and saying, why don't people do this? Why don't people say that? And, yeah. Um, right. So you, and, didn't, you didn't leave and then have this whole, mess to kind of unpack no no I think and I um clearly I talk a lot um and I was lucky enough that my wife would listen and we'd talk um, but I'd also use those psychologists and when I had feelings of um you know and I was uh, when things didn't go right I, I would seek the help of the psychologists and ask them you know tell me how to cope with this tell me what do I need to do um, what do I need to, how do I process? And, and understanding yourself made it really helpful. Like I, I've learned that I've got an overdeveloped sense of loyalty. So if somebody lets me down, um, I get really upset with that, really cross, and then I go, oh, well, I'm never talking to them again. Right, yeah. Relax, you know, like it's only, it's, it might not be a big deal. So I've got to learn how to um, sort of cope with that, I suppose. Okay. All right. Well, those are interesting learnings. It's good to find out things about yourself and how your brain ticks. It kind yes. of it's a bit of a superpower, isn't it? Once you can. Well, well, I can block. 
you know, you can try you can try and block everyone else out, can't you? Like if I never wanted to talk to Jenna Brown again, I never have to. I can, you know, never return your emails and texts and, and phone calls. But I, you, there's no escaping you. There's no escaping that internal voice that you've got. Mm-hmm. So, and that's quite often the one that's just going all the time. That internal voice is the first one you hear in the morning, the last voice you hear at night. So for me, it was about making sure that that internal voice understands or, or I can process that we understand each other. Um, and I spoke to one about, you know, I learned about situational depression where I would leave work and I felt really good. But going to work, I felt like I was running through a gauntlet, through a minefield. Um, so, and also I wanted to know why did I feel a certain way at work and why do I feel a certain way outside of work? And, and again, I went to the psychologist and he said, well, it sounds like, situational depression you act a certain way you think a certain way in a certain environment and then you go ah okay so what do I have to do to learn you know how to cope better in that environment and so that was that was really helpful and and doing some stuff it's okay to be selfish every now and then you know either whether it be 20 minutes every day 20 minutes three times a week it's okay to do something just for you and my thing was swimming Okay. Diving into the water with all those thousands of little bubbles, you know, when you just dive in and you come up for that first breath, that was my moment of freedom. You know, it was just, it was fantastic being yeah. being under there. Until one day I was swimming and I got to the end of the pool and somebody, the lifeguard, taps me on the head with a flutterboard and they said, oh, the phone's for you. And I said, I beg your pardon? And they said, oh, the phone. They said, there's been a shooting. And, and here I was in the pool in the Bay of Islands uh, swimming and there'd been a shooting. Um, there'd been a shooting, or in, in, a, in a shop, and and I was thinking, fire out! Even underwater, they can get a hold of me. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> You've got no. So that, it kind of ruined that little, just that little split moment. I remember standing there, going, "How did? How can you get a hold of me when I'm underwater?" But, um, but yeah, like so, finding out what what drives you and and understanding that stuff, um, and then. For me, it was okay to be selfish for 20 minutes and go for a swim. Yeah. It was good for the soul. You have to maintain a level of fitness in the police generally with testing and things like that. Is that quite a common way people would use to? Um, I thought everyone was different. I mean, like I just got, you know, I went during my time in the police, I just got bigger and bigger and bigger and, and there was some there was some currency there and a feeling of safety, you know, when you just, when you're like, I'm six, four. And if I, you know, at 22 stone, 145 plus kilos, I was, I was big. Um, so I could train. I was still relatively fittish, I suppose, you know, I could I could pass the fitness test just, um, but for me, that, that swimming was just an escape. But again, I couldn't escape that internal voice that, that you know, yeah. All the other voices I could block out, but I couldn't block me out, right. so to yeah. speak. And that was troubling for you at that time, or you just uh, managed to? Um, sometimes I would just, I would just, it's just trying to learn how to block myself out and block out those expectations and um, that, that that you put on yourself. And sometimes you, our expectations on ourselves are just unrealistic, you know, mm. like when no one's, Superman or Superwoman, and everyone's got a bit of kryptonite somewhere, you know, that they just can't quite manage. Um, But, yeah, like learning, just using the psychologist for me, learning how to cope, learning what drove me and why I felt a certain way and why I reacted a certain way um, was just really, really good. Like Mm -hmm. I missed that about the police. Okay. One other thing I wanted to touch on about your time in the police was um, shift work and how that kind of, I think that can be a big mental health um, burden, you know, working those shifts that are changing all the time as well, because I think they're usually the day, morning and night shifts, right? How how did you manage that? Um, So the only thing, in my mind, the only thing we can't generate more of is more time. Isn't it like we can generate, we can generate money and we can generate more friends, but we just can't generate time. So I'd ask myself, what's the best use of my time now? Like, what can I do now? And again, that's that social isolation um, shift working. Um, but I would, you know, like as in everyone goes, you know, my, my wife would go to work or whatever, and I'd be, I'd be at home alone, and then I'd get home and at you know one in the morning, and she's in bed, she doesn't want to talk to me, and um, so that's. 
again, so then I would use um, what's what's the best use of my time right now? What can I do for me? Um, and that might just that might be going for a swim, going for a walk. I used to love chopping firewood. Um, it was great. I didn't have to think about it. I just had to break it, you know, and it was quite good exercise and it was quite beneficial. And I had, when I lived in Wellington, I had all this firewood at my house. I didn't even have a fireplace. I was <laughs> just mad. People would go, oh, that's a good firewood stack. I go, yeah. And they'd come inside and look around and go, you don't even have a fire. I know. I know. Um but they eventually got a fire. But I, so I used to say, well, people get their driver's license before they own a car, right? So it's yeah. okay. Oh, you were well prepared then. Yeah, but I just, for me, it was quite good that, that escape and just doing something as, you know, as meaningless as just swinging an axe. It was great. Yeah, it's kind of meditative, isn't it? It was. Yeah, it was good. It was yeah. good. All right. Okay. But the shift work, again, you know, like I say, that social isolation can, I, I think, present to itself um, or presents itself that social isolation when you're shift working as a challenge um, that needs to be needs to be managed. And the other bad side about it, who else is shift working? Normally your work colleagues. You know, yeah. So the people that you might go and have lunch with are probably your work colleagues. And what are you going to talk about? Probably yeah. the job, you know, again, because they get you, they understand you and... Um, yeah. Yeah. So it kind of keeps you in that same circle of people. It's in that loop. Yeah. And the, and so again, for me, the the important that was really important to make sure that I I held on to those old associations at the old rugby club. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I didn't play for the police teams. I played for Tawa. So um, during your time in the police, you had more opportunities than most to really probe into the thinking and decision making of people in society who are struggling, I guess, with their mental health. Um, In your opinion, how well is mental health managed at a systems level between the police and professionals? I guess I did a small amount of recruiting with the police when I did some scope sessions for a while there. And a lot of the time we were dealing with people who had mental health issues and there were trips to and from mental health wards I, I only got a very small glimpse of it, but I wonder at the level that you got to, what does that look like? I think um, people in the mental health um, in the mental health field, I, I think they are under-resourced uh, in terms of uh, their capability of what they can do, um, as in beds, rooms, facilities. And I also think that they're... they're under-resourced in terms of legislation. And I was thinking about this question, been thinking about it a lot, and um, and why why it seems to be a challenge. So who's dealing with the mental health call-outs? It's probably probably the general duties guys, eh? the first guys, so they leave the police college and they'll go to general duties or the public safety teams, I think they're called now. So these are the guys and girls that are in their early 20s predominantly and they've been in the police for less than sort of two, three years. Some of them stay around for a lot longer. but So they're the people that are going to that. I would imagine when they join the police and they're going through the recruitment process, um, they didn't think, oh, I really want to get into sort of making a difference in the mental health field because they've mm-hmm. got up to law enforcement and not health. Yeah. So I think that's the, that, that is an organisational frustration, potentially, again, in, only in my opinion, mm-hmm. that the people dealing with it, the people going to it, the, the young constables going to it, um, don't want to do it. Right. Then I think the other compounding issue is that waiting for the mental health team. So the police will go and they may secure somebody and, and bring them back to, to the police station or take them to a place of safety. They wait for the mental health team to come along and, and speak to that person. That can take several hours, which adds frustration to, um, I think, adds frustration to those constables that, oh, I don't want to be doing this. So therefore, is their decision-making when they go to those incidents, is it on point and correct because they know oh, I could be tied up with this for the next four hours. I want to be doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why I think the people in the mental health field are under-resourced in terms of their numbers and their abilities. And um, Where if we had more of them and they had more facilities and they could provide a quicker service in terms of getting to that person in crisis, then that would be better. Uh, yeah. One for the person in crisis, but two, I, I honestly think it would have an impact on the 
police constables thinking around, oh, do I want to be doing this? Yeah, right. Yeah, a bit of resistance too. Yeah, yeah. And I just... Um, and we're also very risk adverse, and you know, within the police, and also I dare say in, in the medical field as well, um, they're just they're worried about, um, you know, like we we could only hold somebody for six hours, and if they weren't there in six hours, then we had to release them. Right. Whether they were a danger to themselves or others or not. Yes. Now, I've I've never had somebody, um, I've had one incident in 20 years where they said, well, we're not going to be there within the six hours. So we um, we made the decision. I said, well, you can make a complaint if you like, but I'm holding this person longer than six hours because I'm not going to let them go. Right, yeah. Um, because that's just legally probably the wrong thing to do because um, I'd be outside but I outside the, the, my powers but I just what's the right thing to do and, and again it's that that frustration level comes because I just didn't have the resources mm-hmm. I also think now with all our promotion and discussion around talking about mental health extremely healthy it's wonderful however the system that's going to back that up uh, look at our growth around talking about mental health and you know, uh, Mike King's work and your work and everyone's talking about it, and that's really good. But the system that backs that up and provides that service, are they growing and moving at the same speed? And if they're not, in my mind, the gap between us talking to people, talking about the subject and seeking service and support and help, that gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And in that gap, in my mind, is risk. So that'll, you know, the, the health providers... They're not, and through no fault of their own, in my mind, they're not keeping up with with um, the need of of those of those people. So, if it was bad, um, if I think they were under resourced in terms of you know legislation capabilities um, ten years ago, four years ago, I think they're going to be more under resourced now. Mm, yeah. Which so, in terms of in terms of legislation, do you mean the powers that they have to yes. treat people? Yes, right. yeah. And and to hold people. Like, it's a big thing. When I first saw in the place, it took me a long time to get my head around. They're actually taking away people's liberty, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's innocent until proven guilty. And unless you saw it, then you couldn't really say, well, I know that they smashed the window because I saw them do it. Um, so you do a quick assessment at the time. So if you're taking away somebody's liberty, that's a big thing. And so same with mental health. If you're you're detaining somebody under the Mental Health Act, then in my mind, that's that's quite significant. You're taking away somebody's freedom. And I think we need more mental health. They need more capacity in dealing with that, um, yeah. that call for service, that need. Because in my do mind, you, it's growing. Do you think that's more important before it gets to a crisis point and police are called out to an event? Absolutely, absolutely. Like the police, you know, we talk about the police being uh, the the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and we always, the police react. We need to start getting to the top of the cliff and building a fence, don't we? And um, and that's through all organisations and that's through every everyone, mum and dad, just talking about it, talking to your kids, talking to your cousins, friends, social circles. It's the police, it's ambulance, it's it's health. So I was thinking the other day about how they used, what did they call them back then? In, like mental health hospitals, but they were not asylums, but types of places that existed all around New Zealand. Um, there was one at King Seat, a hospital there, and they were all disbanded and it all got kind of put out into the community. But I don't know the system entirely myself, but are there places in the community for all of these people that... That are, that would have been like, like at Lake Alice or Porter Hospital? Yeah, like all these places existed and then they didn't... <laughs> Where, where did every what happened there? Yeah, where did they go? And I think, well, absolutely, they need to go out in to, into the community and be part of that community because they are. There's no point locking them away. Um, and again, in my mind, I'm no health professional, but if you 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 associate, if you're only associating with people who are all in mental health crisis, I, I don't know how that's going to help your mental health crisis and work to a place of healthy. To be healthy mind, yeah. So, and now what we're seeing is, you know, all the the cases of abuse and stuff, and you know, didn't work like that's. But also, I think that's a change of of our of our culture as a country and our definition of normal and what we're comfortable talking about now, and, which is good. But I, th- yeah, I think if we're in, if uh, mental health consumers are in the in the public, then absolutely they need to be 
they need to be in the public unless they're a significant risk to themselves and and or and others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, and I don't know because I've never, I've never followed up on that. Like we were just, we were the first link in the chain, and then we passed it on. But I would, I don't know if they're getting the support. I would really hope that they would. But again, imagine if they, what it would be like if we increased their capability, their funding, their resources by three hundred percent. If we doubled it, yeah. What, so when. What so when police do attend a crisis of some kind and it is mental health and the mental health team come, is that then the end of the line for the police? Do you follow up at all from there? Um, it would depend where you were. Like when I was a constable in Wellington, no, I did not. You became aware of the people um, every now and then. You'd be aware of, of who you'd been called to. Like you may see them again because it's, okay. it's a big city, you know. However, in smaller towns, um, like I was a detective in Waipukarau for a while, and I was a sergeant in the Bay of Islands, and then a senior sergeant in Dannyburg. In those smaller towns, I think we have a role to play around because you're just an, you're another support person, you're someone else to talk to, um, and and if you can if you have something to offer, um, then why why wouldn't you? And and I I know that we would. We would then provide a follow-up, not service, but a checkup, just to make mm-hmm. sure. G'day, how are you going, Bob? How are you? Um, how did you get on last week? Without being nosy and prying, and without offering advice, you know, or too much advice, um, I think it's important that they know that they're just not alone. Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Alone, especially in smaller towns, with, especially in smaller to... towns. Yes, absolutely. And I get that some of the big city stuff, it's it's harder to do because there's just more people. The chances of bumping into them is a bit smaller. There's more supermarkets. You know, if you're in Waipak, there's only one supermarket. You know, right. the yeah. chances of seeing each other in your world are pretty good. The chances of seeing seeing members of your community is, was higher. And then, so if that happens, ask yourself, so what? Then how do you add some value? How do you make a difference? Yeah. Was that a stressful thing for you as a police officer, seeing people that you'd arrested or didn't perhaps like you so much because of your position in your own personal life around? Um, not really. I had a um, I had a girlfriend when I was going through my recruiting process, and she said to me, um, she said to me, "You'll make a difference joining the police." And and I used to go to the, you know any job I'd go to or the you know the serious jobs or the crisis jobs and you think man I don't want to be part of this those words would just ring in my ear I wish she said hey you'll have a good fun drive the cars fast and there'll be you know there'll be heaps of sausage rolls so that would have been more exciting but yeah <laughs> um, that's the that's the burden I suppose that I put on myself of that I that I convince myself I'm the guy that makes a difference mm-hmm. and um and again look at you know my size I couldn't I couldn't hide I, I was and I couldn't hide um, in, in the community, and but also I didn't want to hide. Mm. Also, like, and I had it, I had it once in twenty years. Someone came to my house and knocked on my door and said, "Are you the guy that arrested my son?" And stepped back, and you know, oh wow, had, had his fighting stance, hands on, and and I just I stepped out and I said, "Well, I'm not sure." I said, "There's two questions here, isn't there? The first question is who's your son, but more importantly, the second question is, is this a good idea for you to be coming to my house?" Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, look, I, I was married and I had two young kids, and but that was the only time. And I had a uh, car full of gang members once drive past my house in the middle of the night and um, could hear them talking, saying, oh, that's where the detective lives. But again, if you treat people fairly, because um, they're, they're, they're people, they're somebody's son, they're somebody's daughter, as I am, as you are, if you treat them fairly, then I think you'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you get past that fear of the big bad gang member at some point after you've been policing for a while. Like when I went out and did the scope with the police, I was terrified the whole time. You know? Yes. <laughs> Naturally, because it wasn't, and it wasn't something that um, was probably good for me to do. But. Yeah, because it's not your normal now. You no. know, so the definition of normal comes into play, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's, but they trade on intimidation, don't they, the gangs? And they, you know, the way they look, if I was to put a, you know, leather jacket on and wear red and have, you know, or blue or whatever colour and have a whole heap of tattoos at 6'4", it could be reasonably intimidating. Yeah. Um, but if you don't buy that advertising, then 
but but that's that's hard to do as well. I mean, but you know, we we were trained and mm, yeah, and I guess over time, like all of the other things, you get a bit desensitized to it. Yes. Um, so then, in your scenario, who's safer? Who's in more danger? The person that's slightly desensitized to it. Um, and go, ah, oh, it's just another gang member. Mm. Or the person like yourself going, far out, there's a gang member three feet in front of me. Yeah, like quite you know? cautious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like your, your fight or flight, and I'm probably more leaning towards flight, is highly more attuned than ours. We're just yeah. standing there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think after the first two shifts I did, which were night shifts, on the third we sat round and had the meeting before you start, can't remember what it was called now, and they kind of asked me what I thought about it. And I was just honest. I said I was I shat myself the whole time. Like, not sure if this is what I want to be doing. Went home, like cried all the way home. It was very scary. Yes. <laughs> and they kind of said, Well, oh really? Like what what actual parts were made you feel that way? Because it was a pretty cruisy night. <laughs> like nothing mm. actually happened. And I was just like, Wow, that was a that was an easy night as far as they were concerned. I was in shock because I thought you know, I haven't experienced these types of situations before, and it was all very, very aggressive. <laughs> yes, I know. When I when I was looking to join the place, I got a job, a second job as a barman slash bouncer at a at a pub uh, and at the top tavern in Porro, um, and that was pretty rough. And um, one of the I remember one of the rules there was no no gang patches, and I thought. Oh, crikey, this is going to be pretty tough because I grew up in Waikanae, pretty naive, sheltered background, and I just I knew I needed some exposure to dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. My first couple of nights there, I remember thinking, far out. What am I for six dollars seventy an hour with secondary tax? What am <laughs> I doing this for? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it was about, like for me, it was just about learning some new skills. I just needed to be exposed to that. And it's not, you know, you're not going to deal with that all the time. Mm. But when you do deal with it, you want to have some psychological capital, I think they call it, where you can, where you know how to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I guess as well, as a woman, I suppose it's probably different than, you know, a man of your size and ability or... Yeah, yeah. And perception yeah. and like your risk is, is, your risk assessment will be different to mine. Although there was a girl actually that I did do the scope with and she was ex- younger than me and you know the same kind of size as me and she was bloody she was just keen to get in there and yes. not scared of anything I thought oh that's it's not just about being a girl then there's a different mindset there happening you know yes I worked with a lady and she had a wonderful presence like a um and she was maybe five foot five and I we used to joke because she was under 60 kilos so she was less than half my weight um but man she had a great presence yeah. Not not confrontational, but confident, and you knew that she was in charge. Mm, yeah, confident. That's the word I was looking yes, for. Yes, just a yeah. real good presence. I mean, yeah, when I was when I was in and I was big, that um, and I occupied a bit of space. People, I was people go, "Why? Well, that's the guy that we're gonna. That's the guy that's gonna grab me." Yeah, right. Yeah. So you weren't really so intimidated, perhaps. Yeah. Did you, did you still feel intimidated? Even oh though? yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, but I tried to, you know, you just, again, you put trust and confidence in your training and your ability to talk to people and engage and find some common ground. And yeah. um, and also, like, I tried to play against the, their expectations. They thought I was the guy that was going to grab them. So, therefore, if I was friendly, um, and I'm a naturally friendly person anyway, I, I think if I was just friendly and engaging, then I could take that thought out of their head, like, oh, maybe he's not the guy that's... Yeah, right. It's going to result it physically. So, you've recently had gastric sleeve surgery to aid in weight loss. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your choice to have the surgery, uh, what the process was, and how the outcomes changed your view of yourself? So, if yeah, um, all my life, of I remember someone commented on my weight when I was nine. Um, and I had the I had surgery last year, um, and I've just turned fifty. So it was a year ago yesterday. So I was forty nine. So for forty years, I've been aware of of my weight and my size. Um, I was six foot. My height. I hit six foot um, at the end of form two before I went to college. I couldn't play rugby at um, at, second, uh, at primary school because I was just too big. So I was I was that kid, you know, act your age, not your shoe size. Didn't apply till I was sort of fifteen. Yeah. I was I was the big kid, um, and and I and now it makes me like, and I we we 
I think about how I was raised and um, and then we have the language that people use, and I now I'm really conscious about it, um, is around food where you say you say to people, oh, could you eat that up for me? Good boy. And we, we seem to put praise around, oh, did you eat all that? That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is it great to eat it? And why is it a good boy that I ate it all? And, um, but, I, you know, like it was one of the only things that I was really, really good at um, was eating. Yeah. I was just, I've won pizza eating competitions, pie eating competitions. I was just, I, I was good at it. And, but I, after all those, I just couldn't control it. And over the years, the weight, when I left school at 105 kilos, uh, I joined the police at 26 at 106 kilos. So I was a big schoolboy, um, and at 26 I was still pretty healthy and strong. And I, the biggest I got was nearly 150, 140k. Um, I did that survivor thing, and and lost the oh, whole. That's heap of right. Weight. You lost went on whole, Survivor, the yeah. Survivor show. Forgot about that. I lost the whole heap of weight doing that because you, you're just not not eating, and it didn't. I didn't miss the food, which was really interesting. And I learnt that if it's not there for me, then it's not going to bother me. And so after years of dieting and yo-yo weight, and when I say yo-yo, um, 15 kilos probably, it would go, it would go, you know, range from that 100 and early 130s to late 140s. Um, but I sat around that 140, 145 mark for a long, long time, and I just couldn't move it. Um, and in the end, I got sick of it. I just got sick of what I felt was not winning. I just couldn't, I couldn't control it, and um, I toured with the idea a few years ago and then lied to myself going, no, no, I can manage this. Mm-hmm. I can't. Um, and then I eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, resigned myself to the fact that I, this is the tool I needed to help me. Um, and it is just a tool. It's not a, it's not a, you know, a fix all problem scenario. So um, I had huge feelings of guilt uh, embarrassment, failure around it. Um, I went privately. I wouldn't even talk to my doctor about it. So I, I a friend learned that a friend of mine did it. Um, I spoke to them, took six pages of notes while I was on the phone to them, rang their surgeon, and away I went. Like I say, I didn't even talk to my doctor. Paid for it for myself because I okay. just didn't want to talk about it. Um, and yeah, now probably what am I uh, jumped on the scales this morning? One hundred and four k, and I've been there for probably since the last sort of eight months. So, um, But for me, the best thing around it is that feeling of freedom mm-hmm. that I don't have, I don't think about food because it's just not physically possible now for me to over overeat. Um, it's, a, is it, it's, probably, it's an addiction. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, I see others, you know, who smoke or they drink too much. Well, in my mind, you can live without smoking and you can live without alcohol, but you've actually got to eat. You've got mm-hmm. to, and you've got to eat food to survive. And I could do it for a period of time, um, but in the end, I'd lose that uh, discipline, I suppose. And um, I'd go back to my old ways and eat. And some of it was probably, um, probably emotional eating, I suppose, from the police and the stress. So let's just have something to eat and have a few beers. Both my parents were big, um, so there was some genetics there probably, but of you know it was a dangerous mix of a really good eater has married a wonderful cook. My wife is just, <laughs> she's just magic. And she would say to me, uh, well, why don't you just not eat it? And I'd say, well, why don't you just don't cook it? Yeah. You know, I said, clearly, I said, if you had some self-control, then, then you, wouldn't, you wouldn't make it. Right. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my fault, was it? Yeah, of course, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I did that a year ago. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my children. I didn't tell my mother, um, sister. No, and the only person that knew was my friend, uh, and my wife that I was going to do this. And I flew to Auckland. Uh, Auckland just got out of lockdown when they had their second lockdown last year. Stayed in a and b booked myself, stayed there by myself for, uh, two days in hospital, two nights at the B&B. Um, Julie said, do you want me to come? And I said, no. So I said, this was just, my demon, I suppose, my monkey that I had to get off my back, and I just needed to do it by myself. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> so then I've now I've had to learn how to drive this new machine. This, you know, what fuel it needs and what fuel it doesn't need. And um, you know, you see those things on Facebook. How many foods do you dislike? And they list all this food. None, none. Yeah. I did, I used to eat them all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and 
so for me now, it's taken probably about eight months, nine months to sort of learn how to drive, what I can and cannot eat. Um, and so my stomach now looks like a, uh, like a set of bagpipes, tube going in and a bagpipe and tube going out instead of a large bagpipe. It's like a sock, basically. Okay. So my capacity is maybe a cup um, at best, probably two thirds of a cup, three quarters of a cup. Um, of anything I made a coffee at the start of this podcast haven't finished it because I can't um, so now I think about fuel uh, food as a fuel and what I need um, about what I need and when do I need that fuel to keep me running mm-hmm. um, as a, we're in the back in the day um, was if I and I to describe how I would think that if a morning tea shout would come out, I'd be aware that, you know, you've had two sausage rolls and a caramel slice. Bill had three sausage rolls, but nothing sweet. Mary had two savouries and a, and a club sandwich, nothing sweet. I'd be aware of what everyone was eating. You're aware you watching everyone. Yes, yes, eat. without watching them, just, you know, I was just, and I, I don't know if that was a police thing as well, just being aware of your environment, but I'd be taking it all in. To see if they'd had too much or to see Well, if I'd probably be a bit of envy. Probably oh, that they're right. eating that. Oh, I must try the caramel because Jenna's had two of those, so that, yeah, that right. must be quite good. Yeah. And then I'd, you know, I'd be helpful and clean up and probably swipe something else off and put that in my gob. And um, yeah, I just couldn't escape it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that it's physically impossible for me to overeat, um, well, you know, some will say, "Oh, well, you can and you can restretch your stomach," but it's so uh, like I've, I've eaten something a little bit too quick and. And the discomfort is just horrific. So I know I'm 99.99 recurring confident that I'm never going to go back because it's physically so horrible to try and eat too much and, or drink too much. Um, but for me now, just to deal with it, um, all those feelings of <clears throat> resentment towards food, failure, embarrassment, why couldn't I control it? Why couldn't I win? Um, I've just, I come back to, am I healthier? Mm-hmm. And yes, I am. So all those other feelings are a big gap. Like if I'm healthier, that's that's a win. I'll take that. Um, look, I, and now that I still get to go out, I can still eat whatever I like. It's just two-thirds of a cup. You know? So you're still eating regular food. It's not yes. like smoothie type. No. So for the first couple of months, uh, I think it basically six weeks, and I, I was – um, like liquids and soft foods, so soups and yogurts, and, and re, then reintroduce some stuff. But it's amazing that some stuff now I just I don't desire. Like I used to when I was in the police and I'd go swimming, I could eat. I'd, I'd sit down and eat a loaf of bread, no drum at all. Just you know, make some sandwiches and away I go. Now bread I don't desire. In fact, if I have something with flour in it, um, I now feel quite sick and okay, I stay away from it. So chicken, I stay away from. Um, I'm probably the world's worst hunter. Um, that I used to be able to, I used to chase deer. One, I could pick them up and then I'd eat them. Now I struggle to pick them up because I'm, I've lost a bit of grunt. I've lost a bit of muscle mass because I'm not probably eating enough protein. Uh, okay. But also now I would eat maybe half a meat patty uh, right. as opposed to steak and stuff like that. So yeah, I can eat whatever I like. It's just small amounts and I'll probably have four to five sort of small meals a day. Okay. Yeah. To keep me going. Yeah. And so how has that impacted? You mentioned that you had a lot of beers and alcohol in your life prior. That's changed too, has it? Or? Yes, yep. So, um, yeah, my desire for alcohol, has that's just sort of gone, really. Like I, I, I if, I'll, if I have a beer like, um, and, and, you know, I drink beer, I'll have, it's really strange, I don't know why, but I, I drink I drink light beer. And I'll have one, maybe one and a half, and you know, a big night would be two, and they'd be over two hours, right? Um, or, or I'll have a, you know, like a, a rum or a, or a gin and tonic, and that's really it. And then when I get to two, it's amazing. I don't know what's happened, but I just stop. Yeah. I just stop. Where before, I would just keep on going and going and going. And again, it was something that I was good at. Yep, something that I that I you know I thought I was good at, and the police it was a bit of currency as well, you know, drinking in the bar, a bit of macho rubbish stuff. Um, but I was prepared to give all that up, and and give up an identity, so to speak. That um, you know, like I'm I'm no longer the big fella, and I've had, I saw a couple of friends of mine um, recently that I hadn't seen for a while, and they went, "Oh, g'day, big guy." I went, "You're not really the big guy anymore, are you?" 
so yeah, so I knew that I was losing that, you know, and and, it, and it, without sounding like a massive ego, if there was a room of fifty people and I walked in and someone said, "Hey, big guy," I'd spin around because I was the big fella, and um, I just didn't need to be there anymore. That desire to be healthier uh, and just to be around a little bit longer um, yeah. was is just was just stronger. My, my, I lost my father last year, and he he had cancer and bone cancer, and um, he was still about 120k, you know, and I thought far out. I'm going to be 76, you know, and am I still going to be big, you know? And you don't see 80 year olds at six foot four and 145 kilos. Yeah, why not? Because they're just not around. So let's not be that that big. And um, yeah, I'm I'm very lucky. I'm just feel completely privileged in that I was you know that I was in a position where I could do that. And, and I just feel free. And it's amazing the amount of people that have done it. Has it changed your energy levels? Like I was your- really, I was pathetic in, with energy for the first sort of six months because, again, I'd say it's just learning how to drive this machine, learning mm-hmm. what it needs um, and when it needs it, learning the new fuel consumption, I suppose. But now that I, and I gave myself a year, I thought, I reckon this will be a year project to come right. Yeah. Um, and it was probably about eight months. To okay. come, that I started to feel a bit better. Um, so yeah, I've learnt. I've learnt what I need. I tell you, it's cold, man. It's freezing. Skinny people are cold people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so cold. Um, oh. For the first time in my life, I own long sleeve merino tops, and I've got to wear layers, um, dermal pants under trackies. I'm freezing. Oh um, gosh, that's a um, revelation. It's bizarre. It's yeah. really, and I said, to, I said in my office, "Is this what normal people are like? It's freezing. <laughs> it's horrible." I even watched. We were watching TV, and there was a scene where uh, people were in the snow, and I felt a chill to my to my core. I was going, "Oh, that, that looks awful." Yeah. Um, and seats, seats are really hard. I've noticed that too. Yeah, no question. No question, I've got my bum. It's just, yeah, it's really bizarre. So when we go, if we go to a restaurant, now my wife will look at and she'll target seats with a booth or something or soft seats or tables with softer seats, not hard seats, because I can't cope. Yeah. I just sit there for about 40 minutes and I've just got to get up. But oh, right. um, yeah, it's funny. And, and, and I can shop. You know, I can go into a shop and not say, hey, does this come in a 4XL or a 3XL or can you order this in for me? And um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite. It's really liberating. I just, I'm really free. I'm really, really lucky, you know, that I've, I've got a second chance, I suppose. Yeah, that's awesome. So it all, you got the result you're after then, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I know that it's, well, I know that it's a tool. You know, if I just ate, um, you know, jet planes, I'm sure the, the sugar level will, will just go back on. But now I, I try and use, I'm more conscious about what I'm eating and why I'm eating it. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, like, I'll chase a bit of protein in the morning, um, you know, and protein yogurts and cereals or a poached egg or something. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think about food differently. I think about it just as a fuel. What do I need um, that's going to get me through the day for the next sort of three, four hours? And Yeah. yeah. So from the surgery point of view, how, um, how was that whole process? Was that quite a... I'd say the probably body probably went into shock. Um, you know, one the the physical impact of the surgery, like you know, the, these I um, had five little holes in me in, in my abdomen, it looked like I'd been. I used to show the boys when I got home and uh, broke down and cried and said, "Look, you know," because I felt like a failure. And um, I said, "But I look cool. It looks like I've been stabbed up." And um, trying to make light of it, but the the body was recovering from that. But then, of course, the fuel intake, the body was used to. I don't know, two and a half, three thousand calories a day, and now all of a sudden it's it's just not getting that. So, for me, that's why I gave myself that long period of, of recovery. Yeah. How long did it take for weight to start coming off? And immediately, or straight away. Yeah, yeah immediately. So, um, yeah, there was a. I did do a, an opti fast diet where they really low high low calorie diet with three meals a day, a super protein bar and, and something else. Um, and I could do that because it was just like playing Survivor. This yeah. is what I've got to eat for 21 days. And, again, it was only for a period of time. It wasn't forever. So I lost some weight. And then after the surgery, it just started dripping off me. It was okay. just, yeah. But I, it hasn't moved, and nor do I want it to move, um, probably for about eight months. Like, I'm pretty comfortable where I am. Yeah. 
Okay, right. So you can kind of keep it at a plateau once you... Yes, yeah, like, and like the body adapts, doesn't it? And just goes, all right, this is the fuel that we're getting. Great, you know? And, yeah. you know, I certainly haven't got a six-pack or, you know rippling torso i've still got a bit of fat in there so um so it's so that's so you know so that's okay too i'm just but yeah i'm weak and cold right yeah. okay so you gotta go and pump some iron and yes yeah. Back on. yeah 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 so yeah and that, again that's just part of for my mind that's just part of the recovery process and you know and now i don't have to try and go for a run around the block at 22 stone, I can go for a run or go for a walk and run a lamppost and walk and run and it'll slowly come right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Nathan, for sharing your story with us. It's been awesome to have you on and I'm definitely sure it will help lots of people. I guess maybe people in the police or looking to join the police or who are looking at the gastric sleeve options. Um, so thank you for sharing and being so open. No problem. My problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unpacking Mental Health. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do this by clicking the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. And this is a $5 donation, which will keep the podcast ad-free. And I would love, love, love if you could give my Instagram and Facebook a follow and I will update you with the next podcast. So have a great day and I hope you enjoy.